Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. A reading from Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Then the angel left her. May God bless a hearing and reading of this scripture. Hello again. I realize I did not introduce myself. My name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving as your pastor here at Urban Village Church Hyde Park Woodlawn, um, alongside some pretty tremendous people, including folks that you have seen up here um, and in the back as well. Um, Please join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive what God is saying to us today. God, we thank you for the gift of gathering together um, in a warm space that is both warm physically, but also warm spiritually. And we ask that um, as we sit here, um, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to um, hear and receive what it is that you have to say to us today. Fill our cups, fill our spirits, challenge us in the ways that we need to be challenged. Call us to something greater than what we could imagine and in all of that, may you receive the glory and the honor and the praise. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So almost uh, four years ago, I was faced with a decision um, that has and is actually impacting each person that is sitting in this room. Some of you know this story. Um, I share it with anyone who becomes a member here and um, have shared it before up front. Um, it was three weeks before the launch of UVC Hyde Park Woodlawn, and my co-pastoring -par co partner sat down with me to tell me that he no longer wanted to be part of the project. 
And I spent an evening doing the ugly cry, using up all the tissues in my poor colleague's home. Um, and then I was faced with a decision. Do I keep going or do I throw in the towel? And I was t very tempted to give up, to try and do this on my own in a neighborhood that needed more than what I could give, uh, more than what I was. It felt unwise at best and egotistical at worst. And so after my wailing and railing at God, I shut my mouth and waited for an answer. But what I got wasn't an answer. Uh, what I got was silence. No confirmation, no affirmation, no direction, really. And so in the silence, I sat with and felt the bigness of the project and the bigness of the decision. I thought about loneliness and abandonment and the feelings of that God-shaped hole in your heart that is always there, but you can sometimes manage it better than other times. And then I thought about these neighborhoods and the people and the loneliness and abandonment and the God-shaped holes in their hearts. And in spite of all the ways that UVC was and is and will continue to be a fraught human organization, in spite of all the ways that this idea of a new church that professes a gospel and demands a critical faith that leaves a lot of people feeling alive and awake and sometimes deeply uncomfortable, in spite of or maybe because of all of this, I stayed. I said, okay, God. I don't really understand this, but I'm still here. If you had asked me why I stayed at the time, uh, if I had sat down with a highly logic-minded person and went through a list of pros and cons, it wouldn't have been taken long to see what the obvious choice would be, get out. <laughs> but of course, logic is only one component of how we make decisions. There's a whole swirl of other things, right? Things like emotions and priming and implicit bias, to name a few. But before I unpack all of that, let's take a look at what's going on in our passage for this week. So if you were here last week, which <clears throat> you should have been, <laughs> LV, I'm looking at you, uh, you would know that our, I can say that to her because, you know, she, we're on good terms. Um, you would know that our passage um, picks right up where last week's passage left off. I trust that you listened to the podcast. So uh, it's six months later, and Zechariah has gotten used to scribbling out his messages on notepads, and his wife, Elizabeth, is feeling baby John practice baptisms in utero. And about that time, Gabriel, who has been working on his introductions game, shows up to Mary with a winning smile and bright eyes, saying, Rejoice, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, but, you know, this is Mary, an around-the-way girl, right? With extensions in her hair and maybe even some bamboo earrings to pair. That's for my 80s babies. There's like three of you out there. This is Mary from the block, okay? This is Mary, and she might be young, but she ain't dumb because she hears Gabriel's infomercial Publishers Clearinghouse Kardashian prepaid credit card greeting, and she is on alert. She, Luke says she was confused by Gabriel's words and wondered what kind of greeting this could be. And the angel says, don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you, which feels a little bit like those T-shirts, right, that says, trust me, I'm a doctor, Poor Gabriel. He underdid it the first time, and he overdid it the second time. But if she knew much about the author of Luke and who he was writing to, maybe Mary might not feel so suspicious. Luke and Matthew, which we'll get to next week, are the two Gospels that spend any time unpacking the birth stories of Jesus and John, and there's a good reason for it. They have an agenda. You see, Matthew was written for Jews, and so when he opens up with that long genealogy about so-and-so begetting so-and-so begetting so-and-so begetting so-and-so, He's, what he's doing is he's speaking specifically to people who need some evidence that Jesus might legit be able to be the Messiah. That is, that he's got the right pedigree, even if it's way back on down the line, right? 
For Luke, he's speaking to non-Jews, and more particularly Roman non-Jews, people who were less familiar with the Jewish backstory than they were with the Roman front story. And in the Roman world, birth stories and announcements of divine people, a.k.a. the emperor, were a key way to prove that someone was destined for greatness and endorsed by the, God, by the gods. And so just as every story takes on an angle based on the lens that the writer has, right, your version might be different than your sister's version, which is why you both end up going to your mom to work it out. Um, just as every uh, story takes on a different lens based on the writers, uh, the Luke, Luke is remixing the birth of Jesus for his people, the non-Jewish Romans. So here stands Mary from the block listening to this very eager dude try to make sense and trying to make sense of what he's saying. And she's probably actually heard some rendition of this in her youth group, since there has been some version of this story that had been floating around Bible studies for a long time, that a Messiah would come and make everything right for God's people. But this thing, and actually, like, kind of little piece of trivia, there were a lot of kids named Jesus, because everyone thought, like, my son is going to be the Messiah, right? Um, but this thing, so this thing that Gabriel's telling her, still, it just feels a little suspect, Right? And if she were just to look at it logically, she probably would have walked away. Who would take a risk like this, right? It has the possibility of not only threatening her reputation, but in a very real way ruining her family's reputation and her life. But like I said, logic is only one component of how we make decisions. There's a whole swirl of these other things, emotions, implicit bias, and priming, to name a few. So several years ago, there was a study by a guy named Timothy Wilson at the University of Virginia where he invited female undergraduate students to rate five different posters. Two of them were Impressionist-style posters, so similar to, to this kind of style. And then um, three of them were like humorous cat posters, kind of like this one, right? And he divided up the students into two groups. And the first group, he had um, the students rank the posters from one to ten, just kind of like a flat ranking. Um, and the second group had to explain why they liked or disliked each of the posters. And at the end of the experiment, the participants could select the posters that they wanted and take them home. What Wilson discovered was that the preferences of the two groups were pretty different. About 95% of the first groups, the ones who did the ranking from 1 to 10, went with, the, with an Impressionist poster. And about half the time, the second group, the ones who had to explain why they did or didn't like each poster, went with a humorous cat poster. And in a series of follow-up interviews, uh, Wilson found that the people in the first group were much more satisfied with their posters. What explains this? Well, one author says that the young women who listened to their emotions ended up making better decisions than those who just relied on their reasoning powers. The more people thought about which posters they wanted, the more misleading their thoughts became. Self-analysis resulted in actually less self-awareness. Now, variations of this kind of experiment have played out in a similar way. The most common version, of course, is in focus group testing, right? Having to explain or make sense or even argue for why you like something can actually alienate you from yourself and lead you to a less sophisticated decision. This has been true especially with any uh, breakout product, so whether it's sitcoms, um, Seinfeld uh, tested poorly, uh, furniture, um, the Aeon chair, everyone thought it looked like a bug, um, technology, Steve Jobs once said that focus groups were useless and that people don't know what they want until you show it to them, which feels a little suspect too, but um, when we rely solely on logic, basically, and I'm not anti-logic here, I'm just talking about when we only use logic, 
Um, and we cut out this other kind of more mysterious part of ourselves, our emotional selves, our soulful selves, however you want to interpret it, we often end up making decisions that are ultimately dissatisfying to us. You might have had an experience like this with a potential romantic partner, right? Someone's perfect on paper, but there's like a, something missing, right? Like some kind of chemical X, right? That keeps you from feeling that very special feeling. Well, there's this something about that chemical X that makes all the difference, right? It can get you to take the risk that your head makes nose, your head nose makes no sense, uh, but your gut nose is kind of like the right thing to do somehow. Um, but here's the problem, right? Our guts have poop for brains, literally and figuratively. There's implicit bias. We've talked about this before, right? The fact that our opinions and our knee-jerk decisions are not free of the unfiltered messages that we absorb from the world that we live in, so that's how you get stereotypes, right? And then there's this other thing called priming, which I thought was really interesting, um, which involves factors that are like in the moment that can lead us to make decisions one way or another. Um, an example of this was one study where participants who were shown the world's words wrinkle, Florida, and bingo um, tended to walk out of the room more slowly than when they walked in. Um, and uh, yeah, so people just kind of absorbed those words. There were other studies where like if people were told to think about um, professors before they played a game of uh, Trivial Pursuit, they played better than if they thought about like football players before. Um, so all these things, right? Impl emotions, implicit bias, and priming, um, they're all sort of un somewhat unpredictable, unstable, and irrational. But then logic can stunt our capacity to see and kind of feel these things that lie beneath the surface, right? Those kind of instinctual things. So the question is this, right? How do we know when to trust our gut and when to ignore it? And this young grasshopper is where our true lesson for today finds its center. And this is where Mary shows us how to and what for. Because in Mary, what we see is not just the ideal mother or the ideal feminist icon. What we find in Mary is simply the ideal Christian, the model for Christian discipleship. Mary isn't so much a role model as she is a soul model. She shows us how to faithfully and soulfully live in the tensions at the intersection of heart and mind as she makes a critical decision about her body. She doesn't fear the complexity um, of the possibility that Gabriel is presenting. She faithfully enters it with an imagination that comes from someone whose soul knows the texture and the tensile of her people's faith. She knows that if she says yes, that she's jeopardizing her future and her family's reputation. She also knows, though, that if she says no, she may well be denying the faith decision of an elderly man named Abraham when he left his wealth in pursuit of God's promise. She knows that if she says no, she could be abandoning the courage journey across the Red Sea that an entire generation of her people risked for the possibility of self-determination. If she sat down and logically laid out the pros and cons of God's proposal, the voices of her ancestors would have been drowned out and negated by all of the signs that pointed to, do not do this. But there was nothing logical about this thing. And so Mary nods hello to the logic before diving deep into the mystery of her people's souls. She says yes, and she is immersed in the fearful, wonderful, joyful mystery of God's promise and love and terrible beauty. She's submerged and finds that somehow she can breathe under this water. Because here's the thing. Mary's yes is not her own. 
Her yes was made possible by the yeses of those who faithfully risked and hoped and put their bodies on blast for God's promise and vision of wholeness of life for all. No, Mary's yes is not her own. It is the yes of Deborah when Barak couldn't cut it. It is the yes of, yes of Naomi when Ruth gave herself up for lost. It is the yes of Esther when she could have hid in the golden elevators that ascended her impetuous, self-centered king husband's bigly towers. Mary's risky, faithful, soulful yes is built on a pillar of yeses. Upon whose faithful, soulful yeses does yours rest? My yes to UVC Hyde Park Woodlawn rests upon the yeses of those who poured into me and those who laid foundations for people that they had not yet met, but they knew would come. People who faithfully fought for the ordination of women. People who faithfully and financially invested into the idea of Urban Village Church when it was just still an idea. People who showed up and continue to show up and pour themselves into this powerful community of inclusion and courage. Who are the people gone before you that have taken, God, taken a risk for God's purpose in your life? In this world? Who is, how is God calling you to step into that legacy and risk a yes today? Mary's yes is the echo of poets and prophets and risk takers and hope mongers that represent her wisdom ancestors who held the paintbrushes of God's imagination. At God's bidding, at Gabriel's invitation, Mary picked up her own brush and dipped it in a well of boundless, fearful, joyful yeses embedded in the DNA of her faith and began with joy to paint. How will you follow our soul model, Mary? How will you join her in picking up a brush? Join Mary and step into this legacy of faithful, fearful, soulful yeses and see what happens. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the legacy of yeses that we are a part of, that we have been grafted into, the yeses that began with one great yes from you that said, I want to create something good and complicated and terrible and wonderful and see what happens. Thank you for your yes in our lives. Thank you for the yeses of those who risked for us even though they did not ever see our faces. And help us to live into that legacy, to live up to that legacy by saying yes to you in ways that maybe sometimes make sense but are always in line with that soul model that you sent before us so long ago. In the name of your son Jesus we pray. Amen.